Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we have Jason Williams on the show, creative director of Proof & Company, master of gin at Atlas Bar, and the creator of Witch's Gin. We chat about his start in Australian nightclubs, he explains the origin of Widges Gin, and we talk about how Proof & Company are changing the spirits market. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Uh, my name is Jason Williams. I'm the creative director at Proof & Company, master of gin at Atlas, the eponymous of Widges Gin, and many other things to many people. <laughs> cool. Let's try to keep it uh, more or less drinks related today. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thanks, mate. Very Friday afternoon. I'm uh, very relaxed and gr- great to be here. I'll be hitting the bar for a few drinks at my bar after this. How's uh, your gin going? It's going great. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's growing organically. You know, Proof and Company have a pretty wide distribution network now. We've got lots of friends uh, in our um, the markets, and they're all being really supportive. It's been received really well. Everyone loves the liquid. Um, all things considered, it's going really well. So I would like to know a bit more about yourself. So I'm, I'm assuming that you started in bartending like most of us did. Uh, would you like to talk to us about how did you get to this industry? Well, actually, it segues from the gin. So the, the gin is called Widges Gin. My first job that I can remember was at a pizza place, washing dishes and scrubbing pots and pans and floors and whatever. And I got given the nickname Widget. Why? Because there was a cartoon called Widget the World Watcher. And, you know, I was a scrawny 14-year-old wearing a pink shirt at Eagle Boy's Pizza. And uh, I got <laughs> called uh, Widget the World Watcher, which very quickly got shortened to Widge. And, you know, I'm 36 now. That was when I was 14. So I've had the nickname Widge for that whole time. That's so cool, though. <laughs> so my first, that was my first job. And actually, now I've got a gin named after... Me. So when I was bartending in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, I was always known as Widge. How, how was the quality of the pizza in that place? Pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Hawaiian with a bit of pineapple. I'm not oh, sure how fa- you feel. Fabulous. About uh, I feel fantastic about it, actually. <laughs> cool. And at what stage did you get into bartending, actually? Um, so I left, uh, left home, um, I guess, late teens, moved to Brisbane, started working at a big nightclub called Family Nightclub. In Australia at the time, it was a big deal. It was when Ministry of Sound and Gate Crasher was really mm-hmm. big. And so this was a, one of the big super clubs. So I started on the floor there picking up glasses and cleaning ashtrays. And so I, after maybe two or three years of doing that, got behind the bar. And so that would have been 2001. I would have been 18, 19. Cool. Yeah. And uh, what, did, what attracted you to this industry? Or was it more something that you needed in order to pay the bills? Oh, definitely a bit of both. I mean, my um, extended family all own, previously and still some now own pubs in Queensland. So I came from a hotelier background on my mother's side of the family and I grew up in a tourist 
town. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. working around hospitality and knowing food and beverage and tourism and hospitality was always around and, and also the lifestyle. You know, I didn't want to um, work in an office as the old cliche goes. And then once I got into it, I just, you know, loved working with people and flavors and music and, you know, partying and girls and, you know, working in nightlife was just fun when you're in of your course, late teens yeah. and early 20s. And so that's how I initially got into it, but then fell in love with other areas of the industry later on. And what was your first big cocktail job? It would have been at that big nightclub family. So mm-hmm. we had a cocktail bar on, on the on the fourth floor called Cocktail Bar. And uh, we had, um, so early, early 2000s, 50 different vodkas, you know, like... Gummy bear vodka, mustic That's vodka, so cool, no, eh? you know, all the different flavored vodkas, chili vodka, big ice bar. Um, so, gummy know. bear vodka, was it something that you made or you bought it off the shelf? No, we made all the, well, I didn't make them, but someone made all the infusions. Yeah, you know, infused vodka in the early 2000s. Yeah, was the thing. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Smirnoff had something like 47 flavors Damn. at peak time, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was it was huge. So we we, it was a big nightclub environment, but we had, you know, big name DJs and that was, I got promoted from the floor onto the bar. And that was back in the days where you actually had to do your time, you know, cleaning toilets and uh, cleaning ashtrays uh, and, and um, breaking up fights and, you know, working until 6am in the morning. And I was really good and I enjoyed it. And so it was, I, it was actually a while before I got promoted to the bar. But once I got in the bar, then I made enough watermelon and passion fruit caprioscas jesus yeah i had i had i had the caprioscas on the menu i remember one of my first jobs was a mango and passion fruit caprioscas so (laughs) the thing is the thing is now i love those drinks (laughs) (laughs) we went through like a 15 year period of like being snobs about it but now i would drink the shit out of that oh totally smash it yeah (laughs) i remember i was at a pool party like two three years ago and I generally didn't know what to order, right? Because you always drink stir down drinks, especially like because I was living in a quite cold place being London. And then I'm there by the pool and I'm like, okay, what do I drink now? And then I thought, okay, banana daiquiri, right? Oh, yeah, that stop was it. Yeah, amazing. So was it more of a high volume bar though? Yeah, really high volume. Um, lots of cocktails actually, but this was like a big club of four different levels, multiple bars. But that particular bar was big cocktail focused, but... You know, Australia went through this huge craze. I'm not sure if London did, but Australia went through this huge craze of what we called stick drinks. We called them stick drinks because you'd use a big wooden muddler, you know, like a okay, like a two foot or three foot muddler, and you'd put in like a fruit salad and mash it all up. Okay, and okay. Add vodka or cachaça and shake it, shake and dump, and those cocktails were hugely popular. And so that was like the first wave of cocktail culture in Australia. So yeah, pretty high volume cocktail bar, but all pretty bad drinks. Yeah, and uh, after that, what happened? After that, um, long story short, I moved to Melbourne. I was in then in Melbourne for eight years. Okay, and uh, Melbourne in the mid to, from the mid two thousands went through a bit of its own cocktail boom. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough to work at a place called Ginger, which is um, Alex Ross and Deb Pays. Um, it was their bar, and I worked for them for three years. And pretty influential cocktail bar at the time. Few few doors down the road from Black Pearl, in a kind of cool area of of Melbourne. Melbourne had this great, or still does have this great laneway bar culture and European influence on its drinking mm-hmm. culture. So small little bars, neighbourhood bars, laneway bars, and Sam Ross's mother and sister, um, Sam Ro- Sammy Ross from Attaboy, they opened up this cocktail bar, and I worked with them for three years, and then worked in a few other places, and then started to get into like 
brand ambassador roles and training roles and all that kind of stuff. What was the main uh, reason that made you move uh, from where you were to Melbourne? Um, I had a good, fr or I still have a good friend, Nick Hatting, who um, just gave me a call one day and said, get your ass down to Melbourne, it's cool down here. Um, I was, yeah, working this big nightclub in Brisbane and kind of burnt out a bit and then moved back up to the, the coast, chilled out a bit and then um, got itchy feet and then got a phone call from him and said the, the bar culture's great, you know, if you want to, if you want to um, continue the bartending thing and you know make a go of it then get down to melbourne so yeah i thank him for that and thank alex who's still a good friend of mine for the opportunity did you get a bit of a temperature shock moving from uh Bearsman to to melbourne yeah so i'm from a place called the sunshine coast for starters and then <laughs> coolham beach and then i moved down to melbourne and you know compared to the northern hemisphere it doesn't get that cold but I remember coming in on the plane. I remember it being really green and I remember it being cold. And I actually remember taking a piss one time and the urinal, there was steam coming off the urinal. I thought, wow, this is cold. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to edit that part out. <laughs> I think we'll keep it then. <laughs> and uh, so, like, you mentioned that in Melbourne you transitioned from bartending to brands. How was that transition and why did you feel that that was the, going to be the next step for you? Uh, I don't really, th it's funny, like, I, well, I, th I think a lot of people in our industry think about their career a lot more, which they should, but I never really thought about my career, my career tra trajectory, I'm like, you know, I never thought, well, I'm going to be a brand ambassador, and what's my five-year plan, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'd like to open my own bar one day, but that was about it, I was more just kind of going shift to shift, and having fun, and, and you know, uh -huh. being in the bar scene. So, becoming a brand ambassador was never a top priority for me, or, or being a famous bartender or anything but there's a company um called behind bars that started in australia um sven almaning and his wife amber started a company called behind bars and they were a uh, an agency and a communications company for spirit brands particularly diageo and they were well before their time and i've got i've got a lot to thank them for because they they hired a bunch of young ambitious i guess talented bartenders like myself and timmy phillips rob sloan um, Greg Sanderson, Barry Chalmers, Julian Cerner, Ben Walsh, like a bunch of other kind of uh, well-known Australian bartenders and created um, a training program for Diageo for the on-premise. So he recruited us and that's kind of what got me into like the training and education and brand ambassador style work. And so I got to do a bit of bartending and brand ambassador work at the same time. So that's how I got into that. But I never was never, you know, a full-time big brand ambassador. How was uh, training for you, training and development of other bartenders? Like, why did you find it rewarding? Um, I found, I still find it really rewarding because um, I think there's traditionally been a lack of professionalism in the education and training part of our industry. This is also like 15 years ago, so mm. it's a lot different now. But 15 years ago, there was a real lack of training and education for bartenders and there was no, there wasn't as much career development or like a pipeline or of growth for where people should go and so even though I was still quite young I found it quite um, satisfying to go into regional centers and regional places in Australia and and uh, coach and teach bartenders how to be better at their job and take pride in their role so they could potentially grow their career as well. Before you train somebody else you need to have yourself some sort of reliable information where did you get your information from because like 15 years ago at least 
from my perspective, it was quite difficult to get access to information the same way that we get access to now. Even like big books, if you bought like big books from big bartenders, sometimes they would have information that like was that, wrong. Yeah, exactly, was <laughs> plainly wrong. So how did you make sure that you consistently had good information? Yeah, um, there's some key books like, you know, Dale DeGroff's book, Gary Regan's book, Craft of the Cocktail and... Gary Regan's book with the names. Uh, uh, they did a few. Like my favorite one from him is like probably the Gin Compendium. Is one of the sure. ones I liked a lot. Yeah. Well, I think his. I was thinking a different one, but there was a couple of key He's books. Got a thousand and one cocktails from Gary yeah, Regan as well. That's a big one. The well. one even before that, I'm trying to think of it. But but yeah, there was a couple of key books mm-hmm. from key authors like that. Um, you know, this is pre-social media, pre-explosion um, in books, I suppose. So I, uh, I actually learned a lot from. Sven and Amber from Behind Bars. They did a lot of research and just poured over old cocktail books. You know, I, I used to get home and um, after a long shift and kind of pour through a Savoy cocktail book or, you know, Artistry of Mixed Drinks mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it was more of the old books because you didn't have the hundreds and hundreds of cocktail and spirit books that we have today. We didn't have social media. So you couldn't just scroll through and click on a few links and, order, and learn about clarified milk punch like that wasn't a thing like no had, no it's true absolutely true <laughs> and so you, you'd, you'd learn about a english milk lemonade which is kind of like a milk punch through william grimes book instead and you'd have to like order that online and wait for um, a couple of months and, and then go through the whole book and then yeah. read the book and then try and figure out what the hell a pony is or, or you know is a teaspoon what's the equivalent in uk ounces and what's that then australian milliliters and you know this is before I guess the, the information boom around cocktail culture that we've got now, but yeah, just traditional books, um, the ones that we could get our hands on. And then there was a few mentors as well, like people like Angus Winchester would tour, the, the team from Behind Bars. Um, some of the bigger brands would tour people around, like Dale DeGroff came through a few times and um, people like that. So I think internet is an amazing tool that we have today to get information, of course. Do you think that the fact that it's so easy to get information online sort of makes uh, these big uh, traveling bartenders a bit less relevant or not? Um, I, yeah, I, I think the all information is great. You know, the information knowledge, whether it's digital or through like cocktail workshops or presentations is all great. There's no such thing as bad knowledge. Knowledge is power and information sharing is great. So I don't think one cancels out, you know, the other. Because you still organize trainings today. You're very active on that. When you have a training today, do you have the same amount of people that come over? And is there the same interest that you get from a room of bartenders today that you had 10 years ago? So, I mean, we, we have an education platform, Jerry, which covers more of the basic stuff that I would have trained on 10, 15 years ago. So complete bartender basic bartender technique craft cocktail families you know recipes some product knowledge etc um, i don't think people are turning up for that stuff anymore because they have ac- easy access to that maybe they do they do their own reading or they can access that stuff online very easily or maybe they'll buy a book um <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe or, or pirate download a book <laughs> actually <laughs> more to the point um so i think the kind of like the workshop format or the in-person masterclass workshop presentation kind of format is still highly relevant but um it's not as compelling and it's only compelling to an attendee if it's something creative or something innovative or something about a story that's being told so Mm. the people that you've had on 
this podcast, for example, some of them tour around the world simply telling the story of their bar. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. most of the presentations are just like, this is what we do in our bar, you know, and that's uh, that's interesting to some bartenders and so they'll, they'll turn up to hear about that because they might hear about another little hospitality touch point which they can incorporate into their bar or how they how they prep for their bar and stuff. So I think uh, no one's turning up for the basic information like, you know, what is a liqueur kind of thing but they are turning up to hear a story mm-hmm. or hear some, a, a different approach or a different technique. What made you move out of Australia and when did this happen? Oh, proofing company definitely was the reason. Um, I was working for a large F&B company in Sydney. I was in Sydney for almost five years, and um, our good friend Zdenek Kastanek uh, gave me a gave me a call and said, "Proofing company have this particular model as a distributor. It's growing. It's proven. We we need to um, kind of." I guess put more structure around that team and we're we're really going to develop that model and that was like our consultancy part of the business the creative services part of the business and so I moved moved to um Singapore in 2015 So that's that's been uh, 5 years of you yeah. in Singapore or, uh, yeah. in March will be 5 years That's crazy Yeah what was your role then and how has it evolved to this stage today My job title is exactly the same um we were a lot smaller mm-hmm. um so we were just in Singapore and Hong Kong. We had a lot less projects, less complex projects, I suppose. Uh, we had a couple of big ones like Atlas and Manhattan. But yeah, we've just taken on a lot more projects. Um, we've developed a lot more tools and systems in terms of what, how we approach our consultancy work. So we have a bit more intellectual property at how we approach our consultancy work. So we've developed a lot of, of that and... You know, I've had a lot of changes in my team in the last five years, but that that's good. People have gone on to other things and moved back home or whatever it might be. So my role, I suppose, has, has morphed from doing doing a lot of it myself into more of a coordination and a guardianship mm-hmm. role because we have, you know, 45 different projects across several countries, team of seven people. So I do a bit of business development and more of a high-level relationship role and guardianship role of the, the, the consultancy work. Talk to us about the consultancy program. How is it structured? How does it work? Like, what is it that comes from you and what is it that maybe comes from your partner? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, every project's a, a bit different. They vary in size and complexity and different needs or wants. The businesses are just different and they have a different offering. I guess um, the main point of difference between us and any other bar or beverage consultancy is that we we don't just fa- focus on the bar or beverage. We we really talk about concept and we talk about um, the whole take a holistic approach to the to the business and that goes from initial concept and what we call a, a golden thread of the guest experience all the way through to you know bar design, venue design, layout beverage development, recruitment, training, education, music briefs, food briefs. So everything that's tangible and and not so tangible in the guest experience we consult on. We don't just put together a cocktail list and a and a bar design. You know, we we really take a holistic approach to to our bar consultancy. What are the challenges that you face when you do something like that? Because I mean, Singapore as a market is evolving extremely quickly and I'm sure that the point at which you joined uh, Singapore is moved forward quite a bit. 
Have you had some challenges trying to get some of the ideas that you had to transition them from idea to actual bar existing? And have you had some pushbacks? And It's a story of my life. <laughs> uh, my professional life, anyway. Um, it's funny, you, you, we're, in a, uh, we're an integrated business, so we're a supplier, first and foremost. We represent independent spirits, liqueurs, tools, etc. Then we have this consultancy arm of our business. So that's always a consideration to take into account. Um, a normal firm or agency can always just kind of like say no we're not going to work on this anymore or we've fall they might fall out and they will just walk away um whereas we'll never do that a because we like to share success and, and push hard to get a great result but also we have this supplier relationship as well um so that's unique i think other challenges are normal are very normal for a consultant is that we have people that pay us for our expertise and then don't listen to us uh, <laughs> and <laughs> which is a funny thing to think about yeah, um, and we have all these little mini micro battles. It sounds dramatic, but I tell my team, pick your battles, you know. We're not going to spend tens of hours like on a what shade of red to have when I know in the future I'm going to need a big budget to buy like the bar equipment that we require to execute our beverage program. And so mm-hmm. um, there's many different little challenges, but there's always workarounds and it's just it's reliant on good client relationship management and trying to make sure that we share the vision together and then stick to the vision going forward but yeah it's funny that consultancy dynamic where we get paid for our opinion and our expertise and then we have to convince people to to do stuff yeah it is crazy to think no yeah so we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you have a gin Mm. and how is that going and where did the idea come from where did you make it how did you come up with it yeah so we um I guess the, the trajectory of Proof & Company has meant um, we've gone from, or we still do represent amazing spirits and products from around the world in Asia Pacific. And we have an education platform, Jerry, and we have our consultancy part of the business. Um, and well, I mean, it all started at 28 Hong Kong Street, I, I should mention. <laughs> um, and, you know, so we've just grown when we've, when we've recognized opportunities or maybe places where we can be creative or innovate in the market our our co-founders didn't necessarily or they didn't come from a beverage background and so they had a fresh perspective when they did open 28 and then plus people like myself or or different people on our team have different ideas because they realize there's different opportunities as a distributor we realized that there was a gap in our portfolio we wanted to still be passionate about quote-unquote craft spirits but um, get them down to a price point which could compete and could be used as um, pouring products. We also realized that we wanted to be disruptive in the alcohol industry from a sustainability perspective. We know if you go on any of the big guys' websites like a Diageo or Pernod Ricard, they tell you that you know about 60% of their carbon emissions and their wastage comes from their packaging and their logistics and so we wanted to think, how can we come up with a craft spirit brand that will fit perfectly into our distribution portfolio because that's a commercial need of ours and bring the world of craft to light from a price point perspective, but then also do something good for the environment around the worlds of spirits distribution as well. So that was the, that was the, the impetus to come up with our own spirit brands. Um, we knew we were going to do a gin because you know we're we're massive gin fanatics. It's the quintessential cocktail spirit. Yeah, um, we knew we were going to do a vodka, 
um, a vatted malt scotch, a tequila. And so we, uh, we went to some of our um, friends around the world. Uh, we went to Langley's in um, Birmingham to make the gin. We make the, the vodka in Picardy in, in France, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, we, um, I'm the gin guy. You know, I collaborated with Four Pillars many years ago, collaborated with other gin brands in Australia, opened up a gin bar for my former employer in Sydney many years ago. So when I came to Singapore, I started working on Atlas, I was just the gin guy within our company and so my bosses said okay you come up with the gin and so uh i did i came up with the kind of the concept for the liquid and how it should be used and how what, what did bartenders need basically that's what we thought we didn't we don't need another gin for, for the sake of it you know and there's some amazing local gins coming out that are using southeast asian ingredients or chinese ingredients or australian ingredients we didn't need to do that we thought what do bartenders need and they want a good cracking London dry gin with a good whack of juniper. For ours, we put in a big whack of orange and I, what I say, a firm suggestion of cardamom. And so I knew what the flavor profile and the aroma and the usage was going to be. We went to Rob Dorset, the master distiller for Langley's, who's been distilling for 45 years. And that kind of went from there. Two years later, we got a gin. Uh, similar process with the vodka and the tequila and the vatted malt scotch. Then um, we built a bottling plant in Singapore and we ship in large formats and then we bottle into different size formats in Singapore and we developed another piece of technology called Eco Spirits. So Widges Gin comes in a normal 700 ml bottle, then it comes in a 4.5 litre Eco Tote or it comes in a 25 litre um, tote and, and yeah, we just kind of cut through all the carbon emissions and water usage and rubbish, so yeah. That was a long-winded uh, explanation. I hope that's okay. No, no, but that sounds very interesting. And how do you, like from the logistical standpoint, how does it work with duty? Like do you pay duty because when, when the thing arrives, right, like in, in a large format, do you pay duty on that or do you pay duty on the individual bottles? Oh, no, how, how much legislative uh, issues have you had to go through? An immense amount of... Um of uh, paperwork to build the bottling plant and to explain what we we're trying to do to local regulatory bodies and it's definitely not my area of expertise i mean but the short answer is yeah as soon as you take alcohol out of bond you have to pay the tax on it doesn't matter what size vessel that you have so if okay. it's a mm -hmm. 1000 liter or 700 milliliters you have to pay the equivalent tax on it and as you know in singapore that's very high mm -hmm. If you if a seven hundred milliliter bottle, about twenty six, twenty seven dollars of that is taxed straight to the government. So that's you, crazy, eh? So you imagine how much tax you have to pay on a thousand liter square IBC. Uh, it's a lot, and and that has to be paid like straight away. It's the tax man. You can't. Yeah. It's not. You're not on ninety day <laughs> terms, or <laughs> yeah, it's not credit. And so it gets shipped to Singapore, and then it's in bond. And as soon as we want it, it, take, it gets taken out of out of bond. Pay the tax. We take it to our bottling plant and then bottle it. Yeah. So the way we perceive proof from outside before I joined Singapore, but very much here in Singapore, is that you are this sort of like very disruptive uh, distributor and company that comes up with, with cool ideas. Uh, you have, I think you've considerably shaped how bars operate in Singapore and how distributors operate in Singapore. Have you seen some of this uh, trickle down also to the way that spirits are sold here in Singapore? Or do you think that you still have the high ground when it comes to this eco-spirits program? Uh, I wouldn't say we've got the high ground. I th the environment has changed a lot. 
I think Singapore is such a de- developed uh, bar scene that there's a huge amount of spirits available here for such a small market. I remember remember when I even when I first moved here almost five years ago, I thought there was a disproportionate amount of craft independent spirits available in Singapore considering the small size of the market. The market was bigger in Australia in terms of volume and the amount of bars, but you couldn't get a lot of the products that you could get in Singapore. And that's only just grown. So there's so many now more smaller independent distributors that have popped up in Singapore, which is great for the bartender, great for the end consumer, the guests in our bars, but it makes it more competitive in the distributor market for sure. And Proof is just growing. And so Proof gained its reputation, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for two different reasons. First was our service approach as a supplier. So we have our own vans, we have our own boxes. We we used to do same-day delivery, no cutoff, no minimum order. You know, I remember delivering a, a bottle of Angostura bitters on a Friday afternoon and thinking, what the hell? Like, Seriously? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the... We would hand deliver stuff and literally on foot sometimes, a lot of the times in taxis, running around dropping products off. And we were just very reactive and agile because some of the other companies five years ago and, and longer didn't have that service mentality. They were focused on bottle sales in KTVs or nightclubs or something, didn't really prioritize service of cocktail bars or 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 developing relationships with bartenders and that kind of stuff or bar owners. Whereas we did, we focused purely on developing those relationships and being supportive and reactive and agile. You know, if you were putting on an event and say, can you give me two bottles for this event? If you called one of the big guys, you'd have to put it into an email and you might have to wait a week or something. Whereas for proofing companies, Zdenek would just get in a taxi and just drop it off kind of thing. The second part, I guess, we gained our reputation on our advocacy and support creative support so you know starting with people like Zdenek or Joe Alessandroni or Michael Callahan or um, people like that Peter Chua Leo Chui um, we would just go and work on a Friday night with polish glasses or unpack boxes or help people with their spirits list or write their cocktail list or train before we had a training platform we would go in there and just do like tastings and ad hoc training and walk into a bar and say let's pick a bottle and pick a spirit a category and learn about that and so we we got a reputation for just being um, advocates for the community and being really community minded in the bar scene here in Singapore mm-hmm. whether it was mentoring a bartender or a bar or the whole community and so we got a good reputation for that proof has grown the industry's grown and so there's probably less of a need for that because people the industry's grown so much here whether it's the local talent has developed so much local operators are just crushing it and other people coming in like yourself and and adding to the the community here so you know we've we've grown and evolved and we're probably starting to take shape as more of a traditional supplier now just because of scale and what we have to do but yeah we're just one of many distributors now but we we do our best and you know products like eco spirits and our creative services, I still think we innovate and, and we are creative and we're just here to support the market really, you know, as a, as a good supplier. We just, you know, our, our business card says um, advocates for extraordinary spirits and our, our wish and our goal is to be the most trusted independent spirits company in, in the world, if not Asia Pacific. And so it's not about being the biggest or having the best. We just want to be the most trusted mm-hmm. and, and, and help bars do better. 
Have you seen other brands uh, starting to adopt or considering to adopt your EcoSpirit system? Um, it, well, I guess for starters, it's in principle, it's not a new thing. It's been done, whether it's mm -hmm. milk bottles or soda siphons. The, the idea of yeah. uh, replacing empty bottles it, is... It sounds so simple, yet yeah. it's not happening and it's just causing a lot of waste. We, we, we were just saving... The other day, you know, like, because when you, when you throw away a lot of bottles, you don't realize that you're throwing away a lot of bottles. But now we we keep all the empty bottles of, of your gin and vodka, which are our house spirits, and, and we have them there in a corner of the bar, and we send them down once a week, right? And I realized that there is a hell of a lot of empty <laughs> bottles, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's wild. Um, it, it, it's really good. I think it's um, 120 grams of carbon emissions per bottle, and... You can imagine around the world how many bottles of spirits are being empty bottles are being thrown out. So it's a really meaningful savings. If and and it's it's really what what I call low hanging fruit. So if a bar is banning straws, trying to use their ingredients more than once, banning plastics in their bar, you know, taking all these small little steps, and they're all little small steps, but combined together, it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. If you can reduce how much rubbish that your bar is generating from a weight perspective that's really helpful and glass is recyclable so it's it's possibly the best possible rubbish but it takes up a lot of space and each bottle has stickers each bottle has adhesives each bottle had to be put on a train a truck a ship dropped off here you know so if we can reduce all of that it's quite meaningful and so a bar can make those little steps to kind of help the environment to your question are other people starting to do something similar um there there are some other companies that are employing other techniques around the um, supply chain and to the production of their actual spirit to reduce the carbon emissions and water usage but nothing nothing like ours but yeah, we we really encourage it if they, if we do see it. Mm -hmm. You talked about earlier on that perhaps at a certain stage of your career you have considered opening a bar. Is this something that you still have in uh, on your sites, or like did you put it on the shelf, or is it? It's uh, it's it's still there. It's still on the shelf. Um, there's uh, there's a little project coming up soon that okay. uh, that. Uh, there's a project in Australia. I'll give you a sneak preview, but I can't divulge everything. No, don't worry. <laughs> but I'm involved. I, I, you know, it, I'm involved in a in a project in a multi bar opening in Australia coming up uh, at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be the first time that I'm actually going to be an owner in a bar. So it definitely is a. Oh, that's cool. It definitely is a. Um, Are you excited? I'm very excited. Yeah. Bit daunting. I've been um, helping other people open their bars for five years uh, and working for other people. So yeah, it's, it's super exciting, um, daunting. Um, but yeah, I've all, I mean, I've, I've gone through phases, right? I've always, when I was younger, I wanted to open up my own cocktail bar. Then I realized how hard it was. So I was happy to work in really creative positions in larger companies and not have that stress basically. Mm. But still in the back of my mind, I wanted to do it. I've got a a dream job at the moment with a great company with a great team so i'm not going to quit that and go and just open a single bar right now but i've been given this opportunity to go in on another business which i'm doing at the end of the year in australia so yeah definitely it's a dream come true and i can't wait to tell everyone about it that's pretty cool and uh, we talked a lot about your the working part of your life uh, what is it that you do in order to make sure that you keep that work-life balance and 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 what is it that you do outside of work to keep you fresh and happy it's a good question uh i 
someone told me there's no such thing as work-life balance it's work-life harmony so how do they kind of intertwine together and coming you know coming from the bartender bar background F&B background that really resonates because I originally loved this industry because I was working nights mm-hmm. I got to work Same in bars me. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. yeah. <laughs> and so um but for a very long time, I, I think I validated my existence by working in the bar industry. Like all my friends are from the bar industry. All my relationships were from the bar industry, if not the same bar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's not elaborate on that. <laughs> but, you know, like for a very long time, that was, that was my life. And um, I think it's the same for a lot of people. Um, I think it's healthy to have outside interests, whether it's artistic interests or, you know, playing sport or being in other associations or whatnot so um yeah i like to do things outside of the industry now and i think mentally that gives you a good work-life harmony but also um i'm pretty bad at it actually so if i say something now it's pretty hypocritical because i work a lot Mm -hmm. but uh you just need to stop work put put tools down and go exercise or tools down and go sit by the pool read a book it's it's really difficult but um try and um think of other things other than drinks yeah, but, you know, to be honest, I think this is one of the biggest challenges of our generation because I think we are now in a, in a world that is so competitive and you have so many different jobs and people can choose and, and, you know, you're not tied to geography as much as you were in the past, meaning that if you are in this area, as you said, you grew up by the seaside, everybody works in bars or whatever because that's where tourists go, so you end up doing that. Nowadays, this is not a thing anymore. People tend to travel more. So I think the biggest challenge that we will have of our generation, like millennials, is that once we get into managerial roles, we will have to find ways to attract people into our industry. And I think sorting out the work-life harmony would be probably one of the first challenges that we have to face, right? 100%. Well, when I was younger, when we were younger, people didn't care as much about their health. Mm. And so, in fact, it was probably... um, Look down upon if you you know it was a badge of honor if you could work like no, a no, no, sixteen-hour thing. It's still thing, happening, yeah. yeah. Or if you could do drink a lot or do a lot of drugs or work work a lot, it was actually people would think you're cool or something, and mm-hmm. people would be boastful about it. I think nowadays people are not interested in that as much. They no. want to they want to be healthier and they want to um yeah, be mentally healthier. Because mm-hmm. all those things don't help with your mental health if you're working a lot, particularly if you're working in a service industry where there's other tensions involved, plus drinking or you know not having a good diet or other things don't, aren't good for physical and mental health. People are not going to come into an industry that's like that. <laughs> no, so, no, they're not. They're not. And and uh, you mentioned it. I, I remember for us when we started, it was a cool thing to show that you're capable of working harder than everybody else, right? Now these people are not interested in that. Like it, it's not a metric anymore used to judge how worthy you are, if yeah. it's ever been. I don't know. Like. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the uh, the industry is probably changing, and that's probably just going to happen organically. It's not necessarily just pe- old people like myself, um, you know, teaching younger people to have better work life balance or to eat better or mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. That's just their attitude. That's just them how they've grown up in the two thousands. That's a good thing, but yeah, it's it's there's a balance, right? You want people to uh, be creative and work hard and push themselves a little bit, but at the same time, you need to look after your mental and physical health. And good leaders will get the best out of people without pushing them too hard. 
Cool. Uh, where do you see yourself uh, in the future? Do you think uh, you'll be hovering around Asia a lot or are you planning to move to Australia at some point in your life? Yeah, I would like to um, probably experience a little bit more of the world before, mm-hmm. me, but eventually I will move back to Australia. I miss, okay. I miss Australia a lot. Uh-huh. It's, a great, it's a great place. So, yeah, I don't have a time frame um, in the next few years, perhaps move back to Australia, uh, but I'd like to maybe experience somewhere outside of Asia before moving back. But, you know, if you asked me that question five years ago, I might have said the same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, I think, I know what I'll be doing after this. I'll be hovering around the bar at MO Bar for a cocktail. That's what I'll be doing. <laughs> the immediate future. <laughs> but uh, what place would you like to move to if you had the, if you could choose right off the bat, like right now, where would you go? Uh, I've always harbored an ambition, I suppose, or a desire to live in New York. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. There's a... I just, you know, I've got a lot of friends that live in New York and they kind of say, don't, lo- don't live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Similar to London, I think, sometimes. Yeah. But, but uh, I, you know, the, I would love to live and experience New York for a while. Um, I used to say the same thing about London, but I get the opportunity to go to London like a couple of times a year. So I'm not sure. Like, you know, somewhere crazy like Sao Paulo or Rio or um, Amsterdam I love as a city. So I'm not sure. But New York, I've always wanted to, even if it's for six months or something, you know, just go there and and uh, experience it. Get a feel for the Big Apple, right? Yeah. Great. I think that's about it. Uh, we have one question that we ask everyone. So we'd like to hear your thoughts on it. So if you could choose your very last drink, what would that be? Ooh, that is a good question. I should have seen that coming. Um, last drink ever. It would have to be a... Um, this is a I'm going to say an Atlas Martini it's really? A, yeah so what's an Atlas Martini? so uh, London Dry Gin which just goes great of course but you know <laughs> well, you can choose your own but yeah <laughs> I mean <laughs> uh, yeah we, we pour Fords in there which we love as well but a good London Dry Gin maybe a little bit stronger uh, and then we use a Bianco Vermouth actually and um, some orange bitters and some champagne vinegar Stirred, super cold, beautiful glass. Little, uh, I like a pomelo twist with a lemon twist oh, on top no, of that. Oh, fancy. And then uh, so <laughs> that, or I think like a, I think you mentioned it before, but like a good pineapple daiquiri or something like that as well. Yeah, yeah, all no, right. Yeah, banana daiquiris, man. Is banana it? daiquiri. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much for finding the time. Uh, it was amazing to have you over. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing more about your future projects. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, please make sure you keep drinking his delicious gin, which is, is available in what markets? Widges Gin. It's available in China, Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand. Cool. Good memory. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jason. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for McKelly, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.